Welcome to episode 64. Do you feel life was kind of set up for you? You had no real choice and that despite all the motivation and inspiration that you might absorb, that the trajectory doesn't really seem to change that much. If this is true for your health and you're wondering why things aren't changing or seem like they're destined for devastating outcomes, then you are about to be mind blown about the social factors that are in fact stronger and more impactful than your actual biology or your genetics in determining the state of your health. This is next level stuff. So, let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Good to have you hanging out with me again. It's my mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy lifestyle that they truly want by the end of 2020. Now, I want to share some cool news with you. We, you and I, have just ticked over 20,000 downloads of the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. How epic is that? (laughs) I'm so pumped about it. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you know anyone that could benefit or you think might get a wee bit of ear pleasure from listening to me passionately rant about health, then please share this episode or any other that you enjoy with just someone you care about or someone that you want to have a good experience in life by improving their health. So, And I ask that because my goal this year is to hit 100,000 downloads. And whilst just in a few weeks, I do have a fairly massive celebrity coming on the show. Keep that on the down low. (laughs) It really is about helping one another with health. And so, I just want to say a big thank you for getting the show and the whole community to this massive milestone. And just put your bloody seatbelt on because we are rocketing towards the very next milestone. All right, today's guest is a woman of many talents. She's a medical physician with degrees in medicine and surgery and a master's in public health and was the youngest ever ministerial appointment to the Board of Victorian Health Promotion Foundation. Following a crystallizing moment in her medical career, she evolved from working in the medical field to becoming an entrepreneur. MDMD is the name of her personal enterprise, which is a business consulting and strategy service that guides startups to market in the most effective way. More often than not, health businesses... May is also a fellow podcaster and is the host of The Alternative Truth in which has over 50,000 subscribers. May has also presented to a long list of audiences around the, around the world, including TEDMED, the European Space Agency and the UN General Assembly. Wow, there's some really impressive accolades there. So, as you can see, she is a super impressive woman. And over the course of this year, she has become a great friend of mine. And I'm excited to have her here today to share some profound knowledge on the social side of our health, one we often forget or ignore in a Western medical context. So, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Mei Ling Dory. Welcome to the show. Matt, thank you very much for having me. Anytime, anytime. You're always welcome. So, I'm excited to talk about this topic. So, why did you get interested in this space? Well... I think social determinants is something that was sort of presented later on in the medical degree. But I have to say, from the very first day of medicine, I probably was um, an outsider in that I grew up in a medical family and I was sceptical from, you know, 18 years of dinner table debate about whether medicine could be better. And I've always believed that everything could be better than it currently is. Yeah, right. That might be a, um, a function of my personality, but social determinants cropped up when we started studying public health. And there was a big stat that was presented to me um, 
which I just couldn't forget, which was that social determinants or our our immediate social context, the connections we keep, is the single biggest mutable factor in the health we go on to enjoy. So it's more significant than whether you smoke or not or whether you drink too much alcohol, but we don't often hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I think it's a, sort of a big light bulb in people's minds to be like, what? It's more important than my biology? It's more important than my diet? Well, yeah, yeah, apparently it is. And um, I mean, you could argue that it, it is interlinked with the choices you make and therefore your biology. So there's a kind of an element of what we call reciprocal determinism, which is, you know, if you hang out with people of a certain social grouping, you'll adopt their behaviours um, to remain connected to the group. But what that says to me is um, as humans, we tend to preference connection over most most other things. So before we get too far into the weeds, can we, for the listeners, just have a definition sort of about what exactly social determinants of health is? Well, they are the factors relating to your social or you could argue socioeconomic um, context and standing that dictate your health and that is your entire, your physical, mental, emotional health. Right. So the the way we feel, the emotional experiences we have, the socioeconomic status or suburb that we live in. Absolutely. The nature of your social life, so to speak, and how that relates to health. All right. So that's, that's a, yeah, that's good. I think everybody can relate and understand to that. So apart from sort of your own journey with your family being, you know, discussing this stuff over dinner, once you entered the medical field, what caused you to be interested in, to, in this area? Well, I think... One of the, um, I think one of the things that medical students suffer is probably um, pattern, like an obsession with pattern recognition. And that's both a wonderful thing, but I also think it's a dangerous thing. On the kind of wonderful side of it, I think one of the things that becomes very apparent when you enter the hospitals is you start to see that people, despite all having basically the same set of equipment, heart, lungs, a couple of kidneys, if you're lucky, <laughs> you know, functioning bladder, arms and legs, um, enjoy profoundly different trajectories, profoundly different quality of life, profoundly different um, connections and a profoundly different end uh, based on how they choose. And then I guess the interesting part is, well, what determines how we choose? Enter the whole topic of, um, you know, behaviour change and social determinants. Yeah, and that's really massive in the entrepreneurial space particularly. But these days, it's just online. You don't have to go far to run into something about mindset and how we think because the idea is exactly what you're saying is that we are all given the same running gear. It's just how we use it, which is dictated by our thoughts. Yes, the squiggly thing though is that I think probably often I think what you're saying in, in reference to mindset and you can the whole culture of you can do it, we're a little bit forgetting um, the fact that your social context, your social economic status, the structural boundaries of your existence dictate the menu from which you are choosing. So on one hand, yeah, we all have agency, you could argue. But on the other hand, like if you're um, on a very if you're working factory work at night, you're sing and you're a single parent and you're on a very limited income, you've got no ability to save. Um, you don't have the ability to just do it in the same way that someone who has a very wealthy socioeconomic 
context who can borrow a million bucks if they want to. Yeah, and we were talking uh, before we started recording about Kevin Hart. There's a, I've, <laughs> I've watched one of his one of his gigs, and there's a bit that he does about the fact that no matter what. He could never have been an NBA player because even if he was the best in the world, he was still half the size of any NBA player. He, yeah. That was just, it was determined for him. Well, I think particularly as like an elite sport, physical structure, as the sport becomes more and more optimised, is becoming more and more a part of um, the success bundle. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, but I think it's almost like we're getting into, um, yeah, we're getting into quite tough concepts at the moment with regards to social determinants of health. But I think the thing to bear in mind is that um, the control we have when applied to which pool we decide to be in is very powerful. So it's it's um, it's often referred to as like, well, your postcode is more powerful than your genetic code. That's a, a statement that's bandied around at medical school quite often or in like healthcare circles very often, which made me think, oh, why don't you just drive to the next suburb? But as we know, it's like, it's not that simple. No, not at all. I, I watched another TED Talk with a similar concept and it was the idea that the postcode's more important than the genetic code in relation to the fact that you were closer to, if you were closer to green patches and you were green areas and green strips in regards to the sort of more biological side of that equation. But why don't people just go to the next postcode? Is it because they don't fit in culturally? They don't relate to the people in the next suburb? This is such an interesting question because I feel like the the, the question, the meta question you're asking is, is there a direct link between socioeconomic status and social status? Yes. Um, and I asked this question to the grandfather of social determinants, the Michael Marmot in London, about what, 10 years ago. And he turned around and said, oh, great question. I don't know. And right. <laughs> I think it's a great question for everyone who's trying to make change because right now we're seeing a rise and rise of economic inequality Um you know, the top 1% own a huge majority of the world's global global resources and they can shift that capital wherever they like and equally, you'd say, exert undue influence on government. Um, so I think there's a really big question for everyone to ask themselves, which is given that we know social inequality is actually not good for people at the top end of the spectrum as well as people at the bottom end, what are we going to do? Well get people like you in to uh, begin solving the problem. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think I think we do need to create, and this is, I'm going to get a bit nerdy here, but we need new algorithms. We actually need new mechanisms to distribute opportunity, resources, um, and to rebundle life experience so that we don't have such a narrow, um, I guess, a narrow post-industrial way of divining a life course because it doesn't fit. It's not fit for purpose anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as, as well, being not fit for purpose is that we were, you know, the current generation with the, and the internet was instrumental in this social progression where in a, in a time where everybody's starting to realize that the social inequality in their own life and they're realizing, well, you know, I can be better or I could be better. So, we've got a group or a generation walking around that are just socially aware that there is problems and they've got problems and they did have trauma and I, I was born into this family, but not the tools to make that change. So, that algorithm that you're suggesting is potentially providing tools to actually graduate or evolve out of those those sort of 
places that people are born into? Well, yeah, I think that we want to definitely work bottom up. We definitely want to um, create tools and culture culture of empowerment. But equally, I think we need to address things structurally. You can't have the top 1% advocating for equality while actively working to maintain inequality. So there's a great book by um, Anand Giratis who wrote The Winner Takes All. And he called out, I guess, uh, communities like World Bank, World Economic Forum, um, who will muster the elite um, and talk about addressing extreme poverty or inequality, but they do it sort of with these big lovings where people fly in their private jets and drink champagne Davos. Like it's yeah. tricky, isn't it? So it's it's kind of how do you how do you um, have how do you balance what's popular at the moment around meritocracy and um, this idea that uh, you've got the Australian dream or the American dream or um, the notion that you can do it whilst the evidence is suggesting that structure is very important. Like um, we actually need to address the structural drivers of inequality. Like if you're living in a bad suburb, and I don't say that in terms of a moralistic sense, but I'm saying a suburb where there's no access to fresh food or there's nowhere to walk or you can't get from A to B without a car, well, it's very hard to be healthy, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too is – like humans and pretty much all life on earth are hierarchical beings. And whilst that sounds like, you know, a quite a removed comment because each individual has their own individual experience and perspe- uh, perception of what's going on for them and where they fit in that ladder, you know, where's the line? And I know this is potentially impossible to answer, but where's the line between normal hierarchical humans that have people that are dominant and people that are not quite as dominant and everybody getting a fair go. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that is that a dog chasing its tail for the rest of human evolution? This is a sticky one. I'm going to give it a go. Okay. And with the knowledge, I may <laughs> fall short. But um, <laughs> I, think, I think that understanding that we are both competitive and collaborative is important as a concept because the extremes, I think, don't necessarily work. Being completely black and white and saying – no, it's full kumbaya. We're only mung beans and hand-holding <laughs> and not having this sense that, no, well, the person that um, contributes more, there's some kind of social or economic reward for working harder. Um, I think we have to balance those two aspects of the human psyche because I don't know, I don't know that um, if we said we're going we're gonna to instigate uh, – inheritance taxes across the board, we're going to instigate universal basic income, we're going to mandate that all suburbs are brought up to the same uniform standard of school access. I think I think that we might not have as productive communities and societies. I'm not sure. I just don't think there's a government brave enough to try it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I believe that to be true too. I remember my degree was in forensics and one of my majors was criminology and I remember realising that even in a, the context of prisons that no matter where you put humans, that hierarchical nature comes out. Even when you take away everything, 
they still find a way to fall in a line of order of dominance. So I find, yeah, this just fascinates me. The yeah, that sort of the balance is, is exactly what you're saying between um, collaboration and competition, sort of thing. It's just yeah, really interesting to me. Yeah, it is, and I think that at the moment we need to be asking questions about where the, where the needle is between those two things, because what. I observe is we've got compounding advantage in the hands of a few, which is causing, you know, damage to the whole. Yeah. And I guess we're sort of being a bit broad in the way that we're talking about this yeah. currently, but research, what research kind of talks to this topic that we're discussing? Of social determinants of health. Yeah. I think there are two seminal studies that most people in the public health community know, but maybe listeners haven't heard of. But the Harvard Happiness Study is a really long um, examination of what makes a good life. It started in the Depression in 1938, granted with a bunch of um, men, and followed them through until now. Um, tracking, Still following. Still right? following yeah. now and tracking their children and grandchildren. And it asked a question of what makes a good life. And um, the most fascinating thing in my view, that emerged from that is this idea that our connections or our relationships are, it would seem, far more important than, say, our cholesterol or blood pressure level. So looking back at the blokes at 25, um, they might have been a complete sort of um, train wreck back then, but if they were able to kind of cultivate good relationships um, and social groupings from that point forward, they ended up quite happy octogenarians. Uh, That said, people that were perhaps alcoholic and sad at 50 didn't really get to 80 in good shape, if at all. Um, I may be butchering butchering the study, but the broad gist of it is that your social connections are more important than your biological indicators in terms of a good life. The second study um, called Whitehall, was, which was done by... Um, an Australian public health researcher, Australian physician called Michael Marmot, who was knighted for his work, actually looked at public servants in the British civil service. And this study, again, hugely credible um, and awarded many times over, identified that your social status or your status in the job that you were doing had a profound impact on your biological health. So even when they corrected it for... um, say, obesity, smoking, alcohol, physical activity levels, that only accounted for 40% of the difference in people's health status, um, which married up with their social status. So this was a profound insight. They went on to do another major study, which looked at, um, called Whitehall 2, and this looked at control. So they were like, well, is it because in high status jobs, you kind of have more control over your day. And it would seem that control, not necessarily stress levels, but control has a significant influence on the health you enjoy. So bus driver, high stress, low control, bad health. Air traffic controller, um, low control, worse health. Um, CEO, actually quite good control. You can actually structure your day, you're the driver, better health, even though it's a high stress job. So to me, that's really, really interesting um, at a time when we're becoming confronted with our relative lack of control. And I often think about it in terms of things like the gig economy and what's the, what that's doing to people and the complete breakdown of groupings and tribes. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting, especially because we often associate, you know, poor health outcomes with high cortisol levels, high adrenaline, adrenal fatigue, breakdown of the HBA axis when... 
you would associate people experiencing that in the worst conditions to be CEOs, to be these high-pressure jobs. So maybe from a biological perspective that the control is the thing that mentally mitigates or lowers those things in the blood. I'm not sure. I definitely think that, and look, I'm really go out on a limb here, but I definitely think that if you've got the scope to structure a day, then you're a lot better off. I mean, you for a start, you can kind of go, well, I'm going to do a well-being activity or I'm going to see a person that's important to me. You don't, you don't feel forced to put your new child into um, childcare far away from where you work and get in an hour commute and then come back at seven when they're asleep. Um, I mean, I think that that sort of stuff is very, very, very stressful. And I mean, looking just close to home in Melbourne, we know that, um, for example, the development that was done out in Casey and Berwick, uh, probably within the last generation, has led to a lot of people in that um, territory being, not territory, suburb, um, doing long commutes into the city to service mortgages on homes which are just on the cusp of their affordability. And when we look at um, domestic violence statistics, what we're seeing is really, really high rates. I think that that uh, Barrett Casey Cardinia area is now the domestic violence capital of um, Victoria. Yeah, wow. And that's something that I would argue that, you know, we kind of built it. Yeah. Because we failed to think about the connectivity of that um, rapidly developed suburb. And by connectivity, I talk about the, the social and cultural connectivity. Yeah. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Do governments or medicine as a whole or generally even, um, do they consider those links in, in any of the research or data when they say, when they say we're going to build a new suburb here and the commute's going to be this and the, you know, the demographic of the person that would live there is this person? Do, is there any kind of variables or statistical models to factor in the transition of that data from physical reality to emotional relationships and the way that that plays out? Well, we, is the question, do governments think about it? Yes. Or do they like practically factor that in? Uh, I'm not sure if they practically factor it in when they're making spending decisions because often the spending decisions are driven by political pressure, election cycles, because 
really what they're responding to in opening up all that land is their perception of the Great Australian Dream being really desirable and perhaps higher housing prices closer into Melbourne. So rather than instigate more complex, medium-density housing strategies closer in, they've opened up these great tracts of land and created a votes boom. Yeah, right. So it it kind of, in a way, comes back to that ego-driven, hierarchical structure that it's like, well... It's a vote-getter. Yeah, short-term. Yeah, totally. It's all about building up the now for me right now. This is dangerous pretty much, I reckon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's like, it's it's the big dilemma of of our times and making change because we're at a time when, um, you know, there's there's a lot of upside available to us, but gaining that upside is going to require um, shifting the way in which power and resources flows, which, which is partly why I chose to work for business owners and entrepreneurs because these are the people risking their own um, resources, social networks, ideas for a, a better future. Um, so I think that, that they're essential to back them and to actually um, midwife into existence some of these new ideas. Um, a good example I'll give is like Nightingale Housing. So Nightingale uh, creates socially, environmentally and financially sustainable housing. It's, um, I believe, a great public health innovation because it gives people who are just outside an affordability bracket the ability to live in something um, and have the benefit of that community and the utility that comes living close to public transport and a beautiful housing and um, the community that goes with it. So I, I just see that as an incredible an incredible new algorithm that um, should be expanded. You're on the board of Nightingale, right? I've been an advisor for the last few years and, yeah, yeah it's terrific. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I actually, here's a bit of history you might not know. I actually filmed a series of YouTube clips in Jeremy's apartment in Nightingale. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I know, small world, right? Um, but, yeah, and for anyone listening, check out the Nightingale model in Melbourne. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It should be a global thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, what Jeremy's doing and the team there is just phenomenal and obviously coming from great advice <laughs> from you. Well, I, can't, I really can't take too much credit for it. Just help around the edges. Bringing it back to sort of more practical reality with the listeners, why when they go to the doctor, is the doctor not talking about this stuff? Oh, Matt. Um, just dropping big questions on I you. know, and you know <laughs> At what? 9am in the morning. I'm thinking about my poor GP and the structural pressure they're under. And I guess when you say when they go to the doctor, you're talking about GPs and primary care people, the first port of call. Well, anyone, I mean, if we're talking about this sort of in the interest of society in general, I guess anyone that is in a position where they should be helping people with their health. Why, why aren't any of those health practitioners discussing these factors? Is it, is it just based on the fact that they're not educated? Is the educational model not inclusive of that? Or is it just kind of despair? It's like, well, we, kind of, we know it's a problem, but we can't, we can't change it, so let's not talk about it. I believe one of the biggest reasons is the system of incentives that governs healthcare. And doctors are not rewarded to sit there and hold space for someone that might have struggled with their um, dietary reforms for the last month and are still requiring requiring their diabetic medication. So I think that the system of incentives is part of that. And I, I mean, I came right up close to that working in emergency um, when 
you know, you'd see people with wholly preventable illness coming in crisis and they had blown through every other safety net. They'd blown through work health checks. They'd blown through, you know, the GP intervention. They'd blown through any kind of community um, community public health announcements and turned up in crisis when, in my mind, they didn't necessarily have to. And then we would do the crisis care, but then tip them back out into the community and return them to their previous trajectory of decline. So the evidence suggests that hospitals don't necessarily shift the needle in terms of population health, um, yet we spend the most money. We spend 80% of the healthcare dollar in their last year of life and 2%, 2 to 3% on prevention. And I interrupt this program to share something that will only interest you if you're ready to take action and make some moves in the right direction with your health. What do I mean? This is for you if you want to increase your energy, focus, productivity, burn some body fat, reduce sugar cravings, and really just take the guesswork out of your daily food choices. If you regularly desire any of those things, then I'm talking with you because I have just seven spots left on the very next intake of the Ultimate Energy Upgrade, which is still in its beta stages, so it is significantly discounted. And after the first run being such a great success and having people knocking on the door for round two, I hustled on the back end over here and put together round two super fast and ahead of schedule and I'm now ready to go. What is the Ultimate Energy Upgrade? It's my online group coaching program that will provide you with the education, resources and a like-minded community for you to get more energy, focus and productivity. So if you're a business owner or knackered 9 to 5 worker, then please pop down to the show notes below and book a discovery call with me so that we can see if you're a fit for the program, which I know sounds like a bit of cliche nonsense kind of sentence, but I've actually said no to several people due to them not possessing the necessary quality of being an action taker. This is for ready, willing and committed individuals. And so the first step to take action to transform your health is to book a discovery call. The link is down below and I will chat with you soon. Okay, back to the show with May. So the evidence suggests that hospitals don't necessarily shift the needle in terms of population health, um, yet we spend the most money. We spend 80% of the healthcare dollar in their last year of life and 2%, 2 to 3% on prevention. It's interesting you bring that up because that's a big motivator for like everything that I do, the podcast, my business, is simply because I realise that when people walk in the door of the hospital, they just walk straight back out into the same toxic life that caused their cancer. So for me, that was the big, like one of the big light bulb moments for me that was like, yeah, we fixed them, but the human isn't a car and we aren't the mechanic. Like, Correct. It, it doesn't quite work like that. And that was the, one of my big motivators too. Yeah, and I think that is a really good mental model to mention because the I am a car, um, fix me up doc is a broken mental model. It can't work. But equally, so is the we're going to find a silver bullet. That is a broken mental model. There is not going to be a future in which nanobots crawl into your brain at, at some point and like completely unstuff your habits and behaviour. So is is the question maybe then to take uh, the heat off doctors at the minute that um, it seems like we're putting <laughs> on them, um, you know, got lots of friends work with them. They're all amazing. But is it maybe just that psychologists need to be factored into the conversation? It's actually not the responsibility of, of uh, our doctor or GP or is it just that it needs to be a more collaborative approach to healthcare where it comes with a doctor, a psychologist, a health coach? Well, I think what you're speaking to is 
kind of a systems approach, I think we can smash the doctors a little bit because as a community, they have a lot of resources, status and agency. And I think they could all be doing more towards this. So I think it's okay to give them a little whack. Um, I think though that the system of incentives, which um, rewards specialists and rewards acute end of life gourmet care is not necessarily um, serving us as a group. And so we need to acknowledge that what's required is wise generalists. The person that's your friend is someone that can look at you as a whole, that doesn't just see you as a, okay, an elbow with a, um, a tumour in it, but they can actually take into account who you are, how you move, where you live, um, the connections you have, your cultural preferences, and then help optimise the levers that determine your overall health trajectory. I mean, that's a big shift that needs to happen, but we need to move away from post-industrial thinking, like disease that is driven by vectors, be it um, infectious diseases or like a car accident or a factory accident, and understand that health is dictated by the whole system. It's a complex evolving system and it's a big shift in mental model that must occur for us to get forward because the big the big challenge is how do we choose better? The, the thing that I'm hearing as you list all of these sort of perspectives on getting better is simply does, it, does one person have the brain space to have a, a whole you know collective of patients in which they factor in all of those things because you, you began that talk, uh, that, that response with the person that is your friend. And in order to be someone's friend, you need to be usually around for a long time in order to be able to really understand all the factors that influence their health. And so that potentially moves away from the industrialized medical system, which is like as many patients as possible, as fast as possible, sort of one dimensional equations, which is this equals that. Um, so how, how would we move forward with a group of health practitioners that are able to factor in this whole myriad of things that pertain to each individual whilst still sustaining the health of the practitioner themselves instead of having 150 patients which they give all of their emotional resources and understanding to. Like They'd have to be at least 40 before they graduated from the 10 degrees that would factor in all of those different things. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm, that That is the price of wisdom. Well, there we go. <laughs> Everyone's going to go to uni for 20 years. Well, not necessarily. I think we can be um, – I think we are useful at every stage in our life. I think it's just a question of we probably need to co-create a system which optimises for wisdom rather than smarts. What we have at the moment is a system that is kind of – it's kind of addictive almost in its nature in that um, we try and – we try and sp- – put out the spot fires like hospital waiting lists. we got to get those down, quick fix that. So we create um, a, a short policy innovation that addresses that. And we don't – we're constantly trying to shift one liability from one person's balance sheet onto another department, another company, another state, from federal to state. I think that understanding that the deep interconnection between everything is part of moving forward. But in the meantime, I think people that are kind of – uh, innovating ground up with different algorithms like, you know, Nightingale Housing um, are really worth listening to. There's a, there's, there's a lot happening, I think. 
So what can the individual do? Like person listening right now has just had a bunch of light bulb moments and realizations about their life. What what are a couple of things that people can actually do to take action today in order to improve this the social determinants in their life? Well, I think most simply look at with whom and how you're connecting with people. Um, most simply, the choice to connect with people online versus in, per- in person. Like in person is better for them and it's better for you. Um, and being present. Put the phone away. Exactly. Be <laughs> present. Put the phone away. But equally, um, I guess, understanding that you need a tribe, number one, and the tribe you ultimately cultivate um, will have a profound impact on the health trajectory you enjoy. So we, we know this even from things like Facebook studies. If you have um, if you have a goal to kind of lose weight, it really does help to have healthy friends. Whereas if you have friends that are overweight, you will tend to drift towards those, those um, demographics and habits. This podcast is all about healthy friends. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting you bring that up because I'm going to ask you next, where can people find you online? <laughs> Look, not a bit tough. Um, if you Google my name, it's a Google Whack mailing diary, and you'll find my sort of personal website. That said, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a tweeter. Uh, my Instagram's a little bit um, basic. I'm not there much, and I'm rarely on Facebook. So, I would suggest they get in touch with you and just get in touch with me in real life. That's 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 how I roll. <laughs> I like it. In real life is best. Sounds good. So, in order to wrap up, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Mm, that's a tough one. And I, I feel a great sense of responsibility in answering this question because it's so singular. <laughs> um, I think that for me, uh, I've had great privilege and access to information. That said, there comes a point where um, your quality of life is probably not dictated by, say, knowledge or this app or that app or whether you're eating um, wheatgrass, I think the greatest discovery for me is just the profound benefits of uh, getting into the present and present day living, not worrying too much about what you didn't get right in the past and not angsting too much about what might come. I think living in a completely globalised society that we do, there is so much pressure to write a story when the truth is that none of us really knows what's around the corner. So I think that the more you can be mindful and present um, and make choices from that space, the better your quality of life. I like it. That sounds great. I really appreciate your time and coming into the studio and talking about this stuff. Maddie, thanks for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure. I reckon we can do a bunch more episodes on this kind of thing. Yeah, look, it's a deep, it's a deep well. It's um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of places to go. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And for the listeners, I'll put all of May's links the ones that she will share with us because she's an in-real-life person, but down below, especially to her podcast, The Alternative Truth. And I will catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks, May, for being here. Thanks for having me. No worries. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode.
Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.